Good morning and welcome to the services and welcome to our study. I'm very thankful to have the opportunity to be with you today and to study with you from God's word. I hope and pray that you'll be edified by the things that we study together. I want to talk to you for a little while today about yearning for Jesus. Something that I believe is a built-in longing that we all have. Those who are careful followers of Christ are keenly aware of this and walk in pursuit of this longing to be with the Lord. There are others with empty lives who don't know the Lord, who have a deep yearning within that they're trying to fill with various things in life. And perhaps in that life, they don't really understand what their deepest yearnings are. And I believe when we study the scriptures, we will learn that Christ fills our greatest needs. Consider Psalms 42 and verse two, where the psalmist says, my soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? We understand what it's like to miss someone that we love dearly, to want to go and be with them, to enjoy uh, the comfort and the friendship of their presence. This passage speaks of such a longing that is much deep, deeper, residing within the psalmist's heart, yearning to go and be with God. That is a longing, I believe, that is built within each human soul. Another psalm puts it in similar but slightly different words. Psalms 143 and verse 6. I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you like a thirsty land, Selah. Again, we have the idea of thirst used to depict an individual's yearning to be with God. It's the notion that there's more than just, well, I would like that or I would enjoy that, but there is this longing, this yearning, this deep and abiding wish for relief from an inward loneliness. Psalms 73 and verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. And that's someone who's so fixed on yearning for God that at the end of the day, they've come to realize that there's no other pursuit in life that will satisfy that longing. There's no pursuit of the flesh or fleshly pleasures. There's no pursuit of a relationship even a special and holy human relationship that will satisfy that deep yearning to be with God. And I believe the Bible teaches that ultimately Jesus answers to that yearning. And you might wonder, well, exactly what does that mean? Well, consider the state of the human heart. Consider mankind as he restlessly moves one from one pleasure to the other, sometimes recklessly moving from one addiction to another. We can, with a casual glance at human history and the present human condition, see man yearning for something more in life and pursuing those desires through reckless conduct, sometimes very self-destructive addictions. Sometimes it's less obvious than that, and sometimes the matter is painfully obvious. We all have a God-shaped void in our hearts. 
And I believe that amounts to a cross-shaped void in our hearts. If I could use language that points that yearning for God towards a yearning for Jesus. And then pursuing questions related to this thought, you might say, well, why would yearning for God make us yearn for Jesus? And I think the answer to that is bound up in the fact that we may long to be with God, but we are powerless to reach God on our own. For God is in a place to which we cannot travel. It's because of weakness on our own part, and ultimately, it's because of sin. The Bible reminds us in Psalms 5 and verse 4 regarding the nature of God. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. We have a yearning to be with God. We have a yearning to go to his presence. We have a yearning that nothing else in life will answer. And yet, God will not have sin dwelling in his presence. We want to dwell with God, but we have sin, and sin can't dwell in God's presence. Therefore, that is a yearning that in our current sinful state, we cannot fulfill. We've got to have help. Breaking this idea down a little bit more, we are unable to navigate to God. Jeremiah 10 and 23 says, Oh Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. We are not able to navigate the journey from where we are, from where we reside here in this material world to that mysterious and unknown realm outside the material world where our God dwells. In Proverbs 20 and 24, he put it this way, man's goings are of the Lord. How can a man then understand his own way? There have been times in my life that I've journeyed to places that I'd never been to before. And I was totally unfamiliar with the path by which a person could go from where I was at to where that destination was located. And I could make that journey with someone else who knew the route or perhaps make that journey with the assistance of a roadmap or directions that were supplied, you see, by somebody who had already made that journey. And with those kinds of instructions, I could travel to that place and go where I desired to be. Well, amplify that from going to one material place here on earth where we dwell to another material place amplify that uh, unfamiliarity of that journey to the idea of journeying from this material realm to the spiritual realm where God dwells. I've never been there before. I don't know the path. I can't help but get lost. It's not within man to be able to know the path or direct his own steps on that path. We must have God's help. If we knew the path, if we knew how to get there or the way to get there, we wouldn't be able to ascend or travel that path. John 3 and 13 reminds us of this part of our broken human nature when he said, no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the son of man, which is in heaven. This passage in its language begins to introduce us to the idea of why our yearning for God is a yearning for Jesus. Because we haven't ascended 
You see, that journey, we haven't traveled that path from where we're at to where God is, but Jesus has. So this suggests to us, whereas we don't know the way, Jesus does. And whereas we can't travel that journey, Jesus can, and Jesus has. So think of this. What if we had help knowing the route, so to speak? What if we were provided with, if I could say, a vehicle by which we could get there? Then what? Once we were there, we couldn't view him. Exodus 33 and verse 20, this is God speaking to Moses. He said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. There's something about our fleshly nature that no doubt relates to the sinfulness of the flesh. There's something about that broken fleshly nature that cannot behold God in all of his glory and his splendor. So we break down to what is illustrated on the diagram here on the screen. We, God is beyond our human reach because we cannot know the route to him. It is not within us to know that route. And if we did know it, we couldn't travel that route. The nature of that journey is such that we could not traverse the expanse that exists between us and God. And if somehow we did know the route and we were able to travel that spance, once we got there, we could not look upon God. That would kill us in our current mortal state. God is beyond our reach. And in observing that as it's taught in scripture, we have a hint at the idea that will continue to unfold in the course of this study that says Jesus is the answer to that problem. And I want you to understand, dear listener, without any doubt in your mind, no pursuit of meaning in life through the flesh, fleshly joys, fleshly pleasures, whether sinful or righteous, no fleshly pursuit will satisfy this need that we have. It fascinates me as we consider this yearning for God to find that yearning demonstrated in someone that was so close to God. I'm thinking about Moses. When you study Old Testament scripture, if you were to, let's say, answer a, a Bible question, what five people in the Old Testament would you think of as people that are the closest to God? You might name a king or two. You might name a prophet or two that comes to your mind. But I think almost everybody who's familiar with Old Testament scripture would name Moses as one of those people who was very close to God. Moses, no doubt, had a very special relationship with God. Look at that in Exodus 33 and verse 11. It says, so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. So this passage tells us that Moses spoke to God face to face, that they communicated as a man speaks to his friend. Now, we all have friends in our life that we enjoy interacting with, that we enjoy spending time with, we enjoy communing and conversing. Uh, perhaps you have some friends or loved ones that uh, geographically live a distance away, and so you're not able to see them all the time, and 
when you are able to have time together, speaking to them face to face, just like friends do, gives you a special satisfying feeling. It, it makes you understand and appreciate what the blessing uh, that that friendship brings to your life. Those kind of relationships are certainly dear to us. Well, Moses experienced that kind of relationship with God. Think about that. If you could go and talk face to face with God the same way that you might go and interact with a long lost friend or loved one, how special would that feel to you? Well, if you're a Christian, you might be thinking, you know, I get to do that in prayer. And I understand the blessing of prayer for the heart of the believer in Christ today, but recognize that what Moses had here was something even above and beyond that, a very unique and special relationship. Consider how in his life's work and ministry as a servant of God, Moses experienced great things. In Exodus 3, Moses talked with God at a burning bush. If you experience something like what we read about there in Exodus 3, where you went to a bush that was burning but not consumed with the fire, and there you uh, had a conversation with God, would you walk away from that feeling special? Feeling as though you'd been afforded some great and profound blessing and privilege? Of course, we would all feel that way. And that was how Moses lived uh, the life during his ministry having that kind of relationship with God. In Exodus 7 through 12, Moses saw God do great miracles in Egypt as he had a front row seat, so to speak, to the unfurling of the 10 plagues there upon the Egyptian. In Exodus 14, uh, Moses saw God part the Red Sea. And we understand Moses was an instrument of God in that story. And so he was right up there close and personal as a co-worker with God in a great miracle that was performed there. No doubt reflective of this special relationship. In Exodus 16 and four, Moses saw God rain bread from heaven to feed a nation. In Exodus 17 and six, Moses saw God bring water from a rock. In Exodus 19, Moses spent 40 days on Mount Sinai and met with God and received the 10 commandments. Others were not allowed to go up there. Others were not even allowed to lay their hands upon that mountain. Moses had a special relationship. In Exodus 24, Moses saw God's glory when he and the 70 elders of Israel ate and drank in God's presence. What a great and unique relationship that Moses had with God. But in that relationship, however profound it must have been, Moses yearned for more. And I want to suggest to you that Moses yearned for Jesus. Now you might be thinking, how on earth are we going to come to a conclusion like that? Let's turn our attention back to Exodus chapter 33. This time verse 13. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, Show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. 
after seeing and experiencing and day by day living everything we just reviewed, some scriptures we read for detail, some we just referenced for the sake of brevity. But as you call to mind all those experiences that Moses had, after all of those things, Moses begged God here in his request, show me your way. I want to know you. And there's part of me that looks at that and says, what on earth more would you have than what you've already had with Moses? I'd sort of like to go to the burning bush. I'd like to be able to go up on that mountain. I'd like to be able to have that friend to friend relationship that we read about. All of us would certainly feel that way. And here's a man who experienced those things and still wanted more. Consider the expression of that in Exodus 33, verse 18 through 23. Moses talking to God. He said, please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place by me and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by you that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Well, this is a curious story that has captured the imaginations and the questions of the careful Bible student for years. And I've certainly pondered over this story a lot as I'm sure many of you have. What exactly does all this language mean? You hide here in this crack between these rocks and God's gonna put his hand over Moses and then pull it back and he can't see God face to face, but after God's face passes, he can see him from the other direction. And what, what on earth? Years ago, I attended a, a Bible study of between Christians and a brother in the Lord went over this and reviewed this story and he put an idea before us as a possible understanding of this passage that captured uh, my attention and to which I've given a little bit of study. He suggested that what God really showed Moses here was his son and his plan to save the world through Jesus Christ. And he framed that in language that relates to seeing a, a physical a, a appearance of a human seeing face to face as opposed to seeing from the opposite side. He used that in language to help us understand that God couldn't show Moses in that sin broken mortal flesh what Moses wanted to see, but he could show him the future, the plan, the son of God and how he would eventually make it possible for all of the faithful to have that for which Moses yearned. Now, you may have heard this idea before, or that may be brand new to you. You may ag agree with that idea or you may disagree and that's just fine. I just wanna ask you for a little while to think about the possibility of that idea and understand whatever it is that was happening here in this story with God and Moses, this demonstrates something to us that Jesus does for the faithful. And if that's what this story is hinting at, well then that just brings those pieces of the scripture uh, 
to gather more closely for us. Let me share with you some reasons that I believe that when God shows his glory, ultimately, whatever that showing demonstrates to whoever is viewing in that moment, in some way, the show of God's glory includes a glimpse at God's son and his love for fallen man and his plan to redeem a fallen world through Jesus Christ. Now, let me show you why I believe that to be the case. Even if you want to say in your mind, well, that's not what's happening here in Exodus 33. Understand when a person sees God's glory in that somewhere, there is a glimpse of Jesus. Now, let's see that. In Revelation 22, excuse me, 21, Revelation 21, verse 22 and 23. Here we find John awed by vision of the holy city. And it says, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Now, who's the Lamb of God? Well, I'm sure that virtually everybody in the audience knows that the Lamb of God is Jesus Christ. What did John say early in Christ's ministry? as John's ministry was drawing to a close. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who was he drawing attention to when he said that? Jesus Christ. Okay, so when he says the Lamb is the light, he's talking about Jesus, the Son of God. Now, if you will, look at the poetic or parallel language in this passage. There are two parallel statements, and that is a poetic device where the same thing is said in two slightly different ways. The glory of God illuminated the city. The lamb is the city's light. Those two phrases there at the tail end of that reading in Revelation 21, the tail end of verse 23, those two phrases are parallel phrases. They're saying the same thing, just in slightly different words. The glory of God lights the city. What lights the city? The lamb of God. So what's the glory of God in that parallelism? The lamb of God the Son of God, Jesus Christ, takes away the sin of the world. So now we're no longer speculating. When we say that the glory of God is in some way a show of the Lamb of God, we're not speculating. That's what the Bible says here in Revelation chapter 21. Exactly how that ties into the story with Moses, to what degree that relates to what God had showed him there, we can leave that open for discussion, but that story introduces us to this idea that we see taught elsewhere in scripture, that Christ is a declaration of God's glory. We're not done. John chapter one in verse 18, reminding us of what God told Moses, the apostle John says, no one has seen God at any time. Remember when God told Moses, you can't see me face to face and live? John is reiterating that truth. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, what did he do, Apostle John? He has declared him. So even though nobody could see God face to face and live, even though no man has seen God to that degree, Jesus has declared God. So says the Apostle John, under the Spirit's direction. Now, when did Jesus declare God? 
Well, let's think about something else we find in the Gospel of John. If you would, please turn your attention to John chapter 14, beginning at verse 7 and reading through verse 11. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. Now, let's pause for just a moment before we resume, resume reading at verse 8. Jesus said, you've known me, and if you'd known me, you'd known my Father. But from now on, you know him, and you have seen him. Well, if knowing Jesus is knowing the Father, why would he say, you now know him, and you have seen him? They hadn't seen God face to face in a physical sense but they experienced God in a special way because they had known Jesus. Now look at the question that follows in verse eight. This is Philip talking. It says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. Now, again, we wanna pause before we continue with the reading at this time in verse nine. Think about the question or the request that Philip makes. How different is this from what Moses had asked? He'd seen all these miracles. He'd seen Christ heal the sick, raise the dead, feed the multitudes, walk on water, on and on and on. He'd experienced all these things that we would all think, you know, if I'd just experienced that, kind of like Moses experiencing all those miracles and all that closeness to God. If I'd just experienced that, boy, I'd really feel close to God. And here's a man who experienced some of the same kinds of things that Moses had experienced in terms of a unique opportunity to see a manifestation of God's power and God's miracles and this close relationship with the Lord. Philip had experienced those things a lot like Moses. And then just like Moses, he said, I want more. Now look at what the answer that Jesus gave teaches us. And in your hearts, compare this to the answer that God gave Moses. What did he tell Moses? I'll walk past you and show you the other side, okay? What did Jesus say? John 14, now verse nine. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Continuing now through verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Christ's answer to Philip says, look, when you've experienced me, when you come to know me, you satisfy that yearning you're having to know the Father. Why? Because the relationship Jesus has with the Father. Now compare that, since Philip was asking for the same thing that Moses asked for, compare that with the answer that God gave Moses. I can't show you this, but I will show you this. And that's what Jesus is saying. I've shown you the Father through this relationship you have with me. Now look, this is not about trying to satisfy our academic curiosity uh, to the questions about what was Moses talking about and what was God talking about in Exodus 33. The point of this sermon is not to just say, okay, here's an answer that makes sense in that passage. 
Hope, hope that helps y'all have a nice day. There's more. The meaning behind this answer is to teach us that when we experience the relationship with Jesus, the Lord intends, the Lord from his loving hand so graciously offers. When we experience that relationship, we're experiencing something that promises to satisfy our deepest inward yearnings. To be closer to the one who made us. Jesus is the answer. Because he showed God the man, John 1 and 14. The word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Listen to it. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What did Moses say? If I have found grace in your sight, show me this. What did the apostle John say here? When you have this relationship with the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, you're having a relationship with someone who's full of grace. Exactly what Moses was asking for. Look at the language the Hebrew writer uses in Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 3. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, listen carefully, and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand on the majesty on high. Jesus did what we could not. He bore man's sin and he purged it. He took it away. And he made that journey from the material realm, having lived in a fleshly body, to heaven. That journey we talked about at the beginning of the study, that we don't know the route and we can't make it. We could, we couldn't look at him when we got there. Yeah, that journey, Jesus did it. And he didn't just do it for himself. He made it possible for us. Because he bore our sins and he purged them. Now, why could he do that and we couldn't? Because he's the son of God. Because he's listened to the Holy Spirit. Because he is the brightness of God's glory. Because he is, listen please to the Holy Spirit, the express image of God's person. So that when you experience the relationship with Jesus, when you walk in and live in and experience a relationship with the son of God, you are living in a relationship with the one who sits at his right hand. Someday will bring us there. Jesus is the answer because he reconciles man to God. First Timothy 2 and 5. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. There is God in heaven beyond our mortal reach. Here is man on earth, lost in sin and doomed to death. And here comes the Son of God fully divine in the human person of Jesus Christ, fully human, serving as mediator between us and God, bringing our relationship back together with God, mending 
what is broken between man and God if we submit to his will. Second Corinthians 5, verse 18 and 19 describes that mending relationship with these words. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. What Christ achieved at the cross and at his resurrection is now spread to mankind through this word of reconciliation, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. The God who was at one time beyond our reach has made himself within our grasp by sending his son in the same form as us. We can't know the route to heaven if we did, we couldn't travel it. And if we could, we wouldn't look once we got there. But look what Christ does for us. I don't know the way, but I can follow Christ. He knows the way and he's traveled it. I can't travel that myself in my mortal flesh, but someday Christ will carry us all there at his second coming. In my sin and my mortal flesh, I can't behold God's face and live, but at the resurrection, He'll give us all a new, renewed, and glorified body that can travel that distance and that can behold the glory of God's presence. He fixes everything about us that has put God beyond our reach, and he makes it possible. You must know Jesus to enjoy this blessing. John 17 and 3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God is possible through knowing Jesus. And therein is the key. If we're to be drawn closer to God, if we're to fulfill that for which we are. Second Thessalonians 1, verse 7 through 9 explains it like this. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Here in this passage, under direction of the spirit, the apostle Paul equated knowing God with obeying the gospel versus not knowing God with not obeying the gospel. So if you want to know God, you have to obey the gospel. And if you've not done that, I want you to think about that. Therein is your opportunity to leave the pointless pursuits of the flesh and walk in a relationship with the Lord. Now, thinking about what it means to know Jesus, understand that's not just a one-time event where we come to know him when we obey the gospel. That happens there. But then we must live on in that relationship. It might help us to understand that, to think of it like we would think of an ordinary friendship. If I meet someone new and I make a new friendship and I'm excited to have that friendship, we don't just say, okay, after we've met, well, we've met, we're happy, we're friends, see you, and never see each other again. We invest in that relationship. We walk within the boundaries of that friendship. 
Perhaps we reach out to them to help them or receive their help. Perhaps they do the same with us. We interact in a way that it's a blessing to one another. We're exercising godly friendship. We do those things. We do things that relate to the pursuit of and the ongoing nature of that relationship. You might say we walk in that relationship. You could think of marriage. It illustrates the concept in the same way. And so it is in our relationship with the Lord. We come to know him when we obey the gospel, but then we must walk in that relationship. First John two and four, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So you see, we have the obligation and the blessing and the opportunity to walk within that relationship with the Lord that connects us with God, that holds forth that promise of someday making that journey to bring us to his presence and finally receive that for which we have long heard. John 6 and 27, Jesus reminds us, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal upon him. Christ admonishes, admonishes us here, don't waste your life in pursuing things that perish but pursue things that are meaningful that last into eternity. In a time of crisis, I submit to you that a lot of times people turn to their God. Unfortunately, that's not always the true God of heaven. I thought a lot about this as I thought about this lesson in view of the times that our nation is going through. What have you seen people turn to? Some people turn to the true God of heaven in one way or another and seek a closer relationship with him seek to serve and better their fellow man. And what do others do? They run to the God of their world, to the ones that they serve. And that may be material things that they go and hoard. That may be freedoms that they go and pursue. That may be any number of things you see people turning to. Substance abuse is on a dramatic increase. Alcohol abuse at a dramatic increase. What else is going on? They're telling us, there's more violence at home. There's an increase in child abuse, things that make us very sad. What do you see people doing in those circumstances? In their crisis, they're turning to the lowercase g God that rules their world. It may be the indulgence of their anger or some other fleshly appetite, but it's not working. In living lives like that, people die in misery. And Jesus says, don't waste your time chasing those meaningless things. Pursue what matters most. In John 6 and 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. That relationship with him fills up our deepest yearning for God and holds forth the promise to journey to his presence some sweet day. Now, in a little bit, you'll be shown some information on how to reach out to contacts here at the Church of Christ. And I want to encourage you, if you've not obeyed the gospel and you want to do that now before it's forever too late, reach out to the church here and they will assist you in that. If you're a Christian and you need help in drawing closer to the Lord, to walk more closely with him, reach out for help. God's people love you and want to help you. Thank you. 
very much.